This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Today is a special episode because we're sitting down with my very close and personal friend, even though we've never actually met. Canadian architectural rock star Omar Gandhi. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawk. And today we're introducing a new series we're rolling out for the 2020 season of episodes titled Talking Shop with fill-in-the-blank or insert guest name here. We're going to be doing one of these sorts of episodes throughout the year and we decided to come out of the gate strong with our first guest, Canadian architect and emerging voice in the architectural community, my friend Omar Gandhi. Hey Omar, thanks for joining us today. Hey guys, how's it going? It's going great. Good, good. I can tell you that I'm going to be listening for the Canadian accent. That's what people are going to notice. That's right. Well, you'll have to wait for it. Oh, I can already hear some of it. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to make you say about as much yeah. as possible. <laughs> yeah, but now you've warned him. It's true. Probably so. No, with all the Benelin that I have in my system right now, there's no way that I could concentrate like that. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. And I have this whole intro. Let me read that so that we can set the table a little bit for the people who are listening to understand that you're not just some guy on Instagram. You've actually got a lot of really nice accolades here. Let me read this intro paragraph real quick. After studying in the regional arts program at Mayfield Secondary School and then the inaugural architectural studies program at the University of Toronto, Omar moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he received his master's degree in 2005 at Dalhousie University. After graduation, Omar worked for Guabara Payne McKenna Bloomberg Architects, Young and Wright Architects, and finally McKay Lyons Sweet Apple Architects upon his return to Halifax. Gandhi started his own design firm in 2010 and became a registered architectural practice in 2012. Omar is the recipient of the 2014 Canada Council for the Arts Professional Prix de Rome and was listed in Wallpaper Magazine's 2014 Architects Directory, their list of the top 20 young architects in the world. Omar was named one of the Architectural League of New York's Emerging Voices of 2016, one of Monocle Magazine's 20 Most Influential Canadians, and was named one of Architectural Record Magazine's Design Vanguard for 2018. Most recently, the studio was the recipient of the 2018 Governor's General Medal, Canada's highest honor for built projects in architecture for the Cabinet Rabbit Snare Gorge. Omar was appointed as the Louis I. Kahn Visiting Assistant Professor in Architectural Design at the Yale School of Architecture for the fall semester of the 2018-19 academic year. Wow, that's a lot. Did you see any of that coming? It's not really that I didn't see it coming or I saw it coming. It was more just it started happening quite quickly. I was sort of working at a rate and things were happening so quickly that it just sort of started piling on. I got to say, it's pretty weird. And it's also a weird thing to hear someone else say, because it's only been 10 years since I've had my practice. It's almost our 10 year anniversary. And it really started in a weird way. So it, it's kind of just been absolute insanity for almost 10 years. And kind of just starting to pick my head up a little bit hearing these things. You know, when I first read this list of accolades that you had, I made the connection because it's something that Andrew on occasion will make fun of me of, is that when you graduated with your master's in 2005, you ended up working for 
three different offices before you opened your own firm seven years later. Yeah. So these were quick stopovers in these other firms. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the first one uh, was young and right. And, you know, I got some really great experience there. I was there for maybe two of those years and then moved to a firm, Kuobar, Payne McKenna Bloomberg, which is now called KPMB Architects in Toronto, which is arguably the most respected firm of its scale in Canada. And so that was something that it was like a move that was a huge jump up to be around so many talented people and work on incredible projects. You know, that was for about a year and a half or so. And then I moved from Toronto to Halifax. And at that time, it was because it was a bit of a family decision between my wife and I to move out to Halifax, you know, really for her job. But it was where I went to school, so I was familiar with the place. So, you know, that's how kind of the third job happened. But yeah, it all sort of happened pretty quickly. But I sort of went from, you know, gigantic commercial firm to a really respected design firm of a large scale to an extremely well-respected small-scale firm that did smaller projects. So it was sort of like, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, I was being strategic about what those firms looked like. But again, it sort of happened really quickly. So, you know, and, and the other thing was, you know, all that sort of happened right out of thesis. And, you know, you're kind of exhausted after that as well. So from kind of the beginning of school to the end of school through work experience, and then this, the last 10 years, it's just been been exhausting, honestly. You know, one of the things I really wanted to, the voice I wanted to have, you know, being on this show, because it's, you know, something I really respect about the things that you guys talk about is it's, it's very honest. And in our profession, I think there's so much bravado all the time that I think it's sort of a perfect time for me specifically, or at least I, I just feel like it's a great time to just kind of loosen your shoulders a little bit, you know, like let your guard down. I think that's a nice way to put it. And I, I appreciate the acknowledgement. But my question is, where in the world are you? Right now, I am in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is on the east coast of Canada. It is freezing cold outside, although it's probably a lot colder in other parts of Canada. It's on the coast. It gets pretty windy and chilly out here. It's pretty dark outside. It's two hours ahead of you guys, I think, uh, right now, so it's a little bit later. It's a great city to live in and a great place to work. Without me actually doing the research on it and then coming back later and adding it as if I already knew, what's the population in Halifax? I think the population here in the entire city is around 400,000. And Halifax is really kind of the commercial center of the east coast of Canada. So there are other cities kind of scattered around in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, but it's really the business center. I know you have offices in both Halifax and in Toronto. How much time do you spend in each location? Is it kind of a 50-50 or do you just, who knows, it's wherever you need to be? Over the last... I'd say four years, I went back and forth maybe every five or six days between my two offices. And, you know, both offices are quite small. I've lived out here on the East Coast in Halifax for the last 12 years or so, and I went to school here. But my family and, you know, most of the friends I grew up with are in Toronto. So it's a funny thing kind of going back and forth, but it's really been quite fun. In the last couple of years, though, or I guess in the last couple of months, I really sort of toned it down a little bit because we have projects sort of all over the place now. So instead of going solely to Toronto, I've been spreading it around and really trying to kind of make Halifax a bit more of a home. 
So let me ask you this. When you started your firm, was it something that you had been working towards and decided that moment had arrived? Or was it something you just found yourself in and it just kind of happened? It was absolutely not something I had planned. I got laid off. Um, and so I found myself in a city that I wasn't from and not really knowing many people. It was sort of like a now what do I do type situation. And there ended up just sort of being, you know, I'd say maybe a year, probably a bit less than a year of just doing kind of odds and ends, decks and you know, little reno projects and certainly nothing magazine worthy, but, you know, worked for some very nice people. And, you know, it, it was sort of like it, it, the ball started rolling and all of a sudden I had little projects to support myself that I needed. And then, you know, one thing sort of led to another and it was just a massive kind of snowball effect. That was a Canadian reference, snowball. I don't know if you guys say that over there. <laughs> we say it. Yeah, it's... I mean, even though we don't hardly ever see them here in, in Texas, but yeah, we, we say snowball. <laughs> we do get snow maybe once or twice every winter, if we're lucky, if we're lucky. Which, which I know lucky is not a word typically used from people who deal with snow day in and day out. Yeah. But for us, it's just, it's like seeing a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't something I had planned. But what I did decide was that everything I was going to do, I was going to do the best job I possibly could. You know, one of my former employers, I remember him always saying that one of the faults with architects is they're waiting for the A project, but there's really an opportunity in everything. And whether or not it gets in a magazine or picks up awards, these things have an effect on the next thing. You know, whether it's just picking up a little bit of confidence along the way or building a relationship with people. And so one of the first ones was a project of, that I worked on. And this was all really out of my attic at that point, just sort of pretty small space and huge stack of reference books. Because, you know, in our profession, no one really teaches you how to do any of this outside of school. And even in school, you know, that sort of advice is not necessarily applicable. So you're kind of figuring out how to run a business all that sort of stuff, all at the same time, and built amazing relationships with builders and clients that ended up leading to the next one. And then that led right to the next one. It all happened very quickly. You know, that's one of the questions the people who listen to this interview might be thinking it. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it. They always want to know, how do people find work? So when we talk yep. to folks like you that have started humbly and small, and you just started getting work in it, and I know the answer kind of is, well, you know, you do as good a job as possible on this one. And that's what helps you get the next one. But you'd mentioned about building relationships with contractors, with builders. Yeah. So how did that actually work? How did you actually start to grow your office? You know, I would say that it was a lot of things, but there was one thing in particular that I remember always telling to a few of my friends and colleagues who were maybe considering starting their own practice was that I was going to make myself as visible as possible. There's a real thing about putting yourself out there. You know, we learned that in school, in reviews and crits. It is a terrifying thing to put yourself out there, to open yourself up to criticism. So I worked on, you know, my website, even though I had pretty much nothing at that point. And I learned things like search engine optimization. And one thing I didn't do is I, I hate schmoozing. You know, like I am not a, <laughs> a real chit chat person. I don't have business cards at all. And so it was really about making and building relationships with the immediate people around me. So with that first project, one of the people we interviewed as a builder 
ended up blowing us away. And it ended up being a woman contractor, her name is Deborah, who built my first project. And we ended up becoming wonderful friends. She was a huge mentor of mine. She really had to work her way through her field to become kind of a licensed carpenter. And really, she sort of brought me the second job by introducing me to people who were interested. So, you know, I was sort of leveraging her own network just by building a great relationship with her and not by overtly trying to build relationships like that, but more just being an enjoyable person to work with, maybe. I don't know exactly what, but just being open-minded, listening to people, especially when it comes to builders. You know, architects have a bad rap when it comes to collaboration and, you know, learning from people. And so that was one of those situations where truth is, I didn't know what I was doing really at all. You know the basics, but in terms of putting your own brand out there and trying to figure it out, it's a terrifying thing when you're dealing with people's money, especially with private projects like this. You're not just dealing with money, you're dealing with people's hard-earned, saved money. It means a lot to people. And so, you know, you're really leveraging advice from the engineer or the builder who you're working with. And I'd say that most people don't have good experiences working with people, especially when there's that sort of hierarchy built in that really is just like a fictitious thing. There's something to learn from everyone. So, you know, I've really always just tried to surround myself with positive people and tried to keep really small. When I was working out of the attic, that was for the first couple years. And then I hired one person and moved to a really small space. And that was a big deal. That was a terrifying thing for me to rent a space. Yeah, rent is scary. Yeah. You know, it's beneficial to be conservative in that way because it's going to make things easier when you don't have a huge overhead. You know, one of the things I was going to say is that, you know, I didn't have the benefit of coming from a family that was going to build the family home or something. You know, that wasn't my first project is doing mom and dad's place or something or my own place for that matter. You know, that's just like not even in the realm of possibility. So I really had to just sort of put myself out there and take on whatever I could find. And really don't want to understate how small the projects were at the beginning. I was actually working on contract with a technologist who kind of had a company set up and people would come to him for projects that, you know, they never would pay an architect for. And I wasn't registered at that point or licensed. So I was doing those level of projects for the first year, year and a half or so. You'd mentioned that you were working out of your attic for a few years, taking on smaller projects and didn't move out and get a, I'll say a proper office space until you hired an employee. Yeah. Did you have projects where clients were involved, where you had to meet with them? You know, some people ask, hey, I'm working out of my house and I don't want to go meet with clients at the coffee shop. Did you have that kind of issue? Like, did people know that they were working with you and you're working out of your attic and they were accommodating? People were. I think partially because these were odds and end jobs. You know, it wasn't necessarily, I might meet with the client on site, but I wasn't even really the guy. Clearly, they weren't looking for the big architect, you know, hire an architect type experience because they were coming to me through this technologist. So their expectations were probably fairly low <laughs> to begin with. And then eventually when I did start having, you know, my own projects, yeah, people were pretty cool. I mean, my wife and I at the time, we lived in a pretty nice little place. I think people who were coming over, you know, in the living room to sit down and show me their... Uh, catalogs for whatever material they wanted to convince me to use. Those were the really the people that were coming over at that point. Obviously, it sounds like there were a couple of really key relationships that you forged early on in this process that 
helped you get to the next level. You'd made a comment, and I wanted to reiterate that this has to be true, because the story about how you and I came to, I'll say, digitally know one another, pretty good spirit on your part. Um, (laughs) Well, well, I don't know if you want to set up that story, but... Yeah, let's set it up. I'd love to hear from his perspective. (laughs) Well, you set it up, and then I'll tell you my response to that. Yes. It was on episode 25, I believe. It was the architectural bucket list. And Andrew and I had come up with these kind of silos of, okay, what would be the answer to, like, if you're going to travel someplace, where are you going to go? What's your kind of like an architectural bucket list might be. And one of them was name an architect that you want to hang out with. You know, I'm on Instagram a lot. I find a lot of inspiration there. I think it's one of the platform that really suits the design profession very well. And and I'd stumbled across one of Omar's projects and I just kind of fell in love with it. And I was like, so graceful in these proportions. It was just, it's, it's like, it just really hit my wheelhouse. And of course, once you find those people, you start doing like a deep dive. So I didn't know Omar. Literally, I didn't know anything about him. Like I went on his website. I totally did a cyber stalking kind of thing. But I think all architects do this when they find somebody's work that they like. And so as we're coming up with this question of who we can hang out with, I couldn't, I was finding all these pictures of Omar and he looked really serious. And, and I thought, this guy has no time for my foolishness. So I went with Tom Kundig because I also like his work and his methodology and his kind of how you build it represented in the final product kind of really aligns with my way of thinking. So I made a crack on there that I was going to choose Omar, but he looks mean in all his photographs. <laughs> and so I made a really kind of flip comment about too bad for Omar. You could have been my number one, but you're my number two. <laughs> and then, and I, and I thought that was the end of it. And then Omar will let you pick it up from there. Well, honestly, I didn't know much about your show. I'd never heard of it. And there was a colleague of mine uh, who sent me a message on messenger on Facebook and just said, I don't know if you listen to this show, but these guys mentioned you and it was pretty funny. So I, I gave it a listen and Honestly, I thought it was pretty hilarious on several levels. One, it was funny that you'd even mentioned me next to Tom Kundig, uh, who's you know a, a hero of mine as well. And then also just, there was a part of me that just thought, God, our profession can be so lame. You know, like it can be so lame and I'm 10 years into my own thing and I just don't know why... People have this kind of facade, and I completely bought into that as well. And at the same time, as I thought it was kind of funny, I was a little disappointed in myself for falling, you know, into that trap, right? Of you know that that very serious sort of look. And part of that is, you know, probably trying to feed into the image of you know someone who's really complicated or whatever. I don't know. Whatever the case <laughs> might be, I just thought, man, that's really lame. You know, I wonder if other people think that as well. And so I immediately took out a piece of paper and I wrote a note and I said, hey, man, I heard your show, something like that. Let's be buddies. Or, you know, like I kind of just like wrote a little response to your thing and I put it in the mail and I sent it off to you thinking, you know, you'd you'd get a kick out of that. You know, the other connection to that episode was that I was in Berlin for an event uh, maybe four years ago, three years ago. And I ended up going to the World Architecture Festival, you know, conference that happens there. And it was sort of like a coincidence that I was there and I was a part of this event. And I ended up just sort of standing around. I didn't know anybody. And 
like I said, I'm not really a big small talk guy. I'm more like go to the bar and hang out there kind of person. And lo and behold, I ended up just standing next to some other guy that kind of obviously felt the same way about that sort of stuff. And it was Tom Cunningham. (laughs) And I just had this like, I was like, holy shit, you know, in my mind, you know, I didn't say that out loud. Uh, and I introduced myself, you know, I knew that he had come to Halifax before and, you know, I introduced myself and I just said I was a big fan and, uh, you know, also tried to play it cool as well. Anyways, in the mail, six months later, I got his new book and he signed a copy. Like I met this guy for like 30 seconds and he sent me a signed copy of his book in the mail. That's funny. It, which blew my mind, you know, those are nice gestures. It's a nice gesture, especially when you really admire people and they end up being a good person. Just just regular people. Yeah, just a regular dude, right? Like a regular guy. I thought that was really nice. That is nice. I have to tell you two things, though, that kind of continue the story of that note. So when that note showed up in my office, I saw it and I was like, well, this is weird. What's this? And then I saw it and I was like, oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, what's this guy? Like, I kind of called him out a little bit. And I opened it up and it was hilarious. So I, I got a big kick out of it. I've showed it to a half dozen people. I've told this story because like I tell Barry, you got to go check out this guy's website. If you care about materiality and connections and, and down here, we have a regionalist style that there's a lot of people that really appreciate. And yeah. it has an agrarian kind of feel to it. This guy's got the same thing going, but in Canada, you got to go check out the work. That easily leads to my story about the photos. Of course, what does everybody do? They go look up you to see the photos. I don't know what was wrong with me the day that I decided to look up your photo and all I found were ones where you looked serious because that hasn't happened ever again. And everyone looks at it and goes, this guy looks pretty nice to me. You're just a jerk. You know, <laughs> he's smiling in most of these photos. So for what it's worth, apparently I'm bad at Googling. <laughs> so <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I think you were probably bang on, but I think you'd probably find that amongst a lot of people in the profession. It's just sort of like an insecurity thing, I think. But one thing I'd love to just jump back to the story of starting my practice, because I feel like it's an important fact that I sort of glossed over. And maybe this is part of that new chapter for me. But man, I was really angry for 10 years. Which 10 years, though? These 10 years that just passed. So, you know, like... Produced a lot of work and won accolades and all that sort of stuff. But it was like I was grinding. Like that sort of thing about proving yourself. And maybe part of it was my last work experience wasn't amazing. And I got laid off, like I said. And so starting my own practice was sort of like I was treading water at the beginning. But it certainly was more than that. It was about trying to find my own voice and proving my worth. It's a tough profession to do that. It can be very subjective. It's a grind. It can be terrifying. We don't know anything about business. So there's that, you know, kind of scary side of it as well. The competitive side of the profession is not very fun. Even having won some of those accolades, none of that really made me happy. I'd say that the opportunities that some of those things afforded me as a result may have made me happy, but man, I love the studio and I love being with my team. I love the day-to-day. You know, that stuff really makes me happy. I love being on site, putting my boots on. So, you know, it's sort of like I've spent a lot of time in the last, you know, little while just really reflecting on this chapter of my career and just trying to filter out what I imagine the next 10 looking like. 
and what I want to focus on. And, you know, things like awards and all that kind of stuff. Oh, man, I just don't really have the interest. Well, that's interesting. Since it's a new decade and you're about to hit 10 years in business, have you started to think about firm goals? I mean, you'd mentioned earlier that you want to stay small. Yeah, want to stay small. You know, in the two offices total, there's like 10 of us. One of the great things about that is that it really affords us the opportunity to be selective about the people we work with and the projects we work on. It's really kind of the most selfish way of approaching the work now. It's really like, I only want to work on things that are really fun and rewarding, and I have almost no interest in anything else. So what are you interested in? Let's talk about that. Well, and maybe this connects to uh, my parents not uh, hiring me to design their house. (laughs) I didn't really come from a place like that. And so I think one of the conflicting things that I've dealt with in my mind for a long time is, you know, I design things uh, with my team for people that don't come from a place I came from. And I think it would be really wonderful to start doing public work and start doing things that people from all corners of the city can appreciate. You know, there was a library that was built here in Halifax It was designed by Schmidt Hammer Lawson uh, maybe five years ago, and it really changed the the city. You know, like it ended up becoming really like the living room of the city. And, uh, you know, whether people are employed or unemployed or new to the country or their family had been here for generations, it ended up being this hub. You know, I look at that and think, you know, I would love to have that kind of impact on people. That's really sort of it. And, you know, I love houses because... You know, I've always been interested in the way that people live, and I've really enjoyed kind of the relationships that come from that. You know, I'd like for that to be a part of the practice. I'd say, like, this next chapter, this next 10-year period is really about sort of fine-tuning what we want to work on and doing it slowly, finding the joy in all those projects. Well, let's take a minute and talk about some of the residential work, because that's what I'm most familiar with from your portfolio. Yeah, sure. One of the things that always jumps out at me is the remoteness that a lot of these projects are situated. And I wanted to ask you about the challenges of building where you build. Like you said, it's freezing right now. So there's certain, like you have to design around your foundations around when you're building the house. Right. I remember in your Instagram feed, maybe it's in your stories, you were trying to track down a contractor to build a project for you in this very specific part of the country. Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit about the workflow for your office, where it relates to the type of projects and where they're located. Sure. So when you get these projects, they seem to be jetting out on a craggy rock with five perfectly placed trees on the shoreline. How fun are those projects to work on and how hard are they to build? They're a lot of fun. I would say that the benefit that I have is that I live in a part of the world that is maybe as beautiful as anywhere on the planet and just happens to be a lot more affordable than other places. So you end up having a lot of people from Toronto or from New York, Boston, or even from Switzerland and Germany that buy land in these places that want to be in rural areas and buy a slice of heaven for not a ton of money. Very different from Cape Cod or the Hamptons or any of that sort of stuff. This is just not like that at all. It's extremely dramatic. It's a hard climate, but it's also not very expensive in relation to those other places. So I'd say that it could have been a lot harder to deal with the task of a project like that 
if not for the constraints that came with it. And the number one constraint was that there was very little budget on most of those projects. It's way scarier and a lot more confusing when there's a lot of money and endless opportunities in terms of what you can do. It becomes a lot clearer when there are serious budgetary constraints. Using local materials and using framing sizes that are available locally And then also a building typology and method of construction that's like widely familiar to the area. Because in these places, it's hard enough to find someone who does really modern, minimal work in the city. But to find someone who can do that stuff in remote places, like it's like I have like five heads, you know, asking for things like that. So, you know, it's very much a learning process working with a builder who had never done that before in almost all those cases. Again, it comes back to that ability, I think, to collaborate and learn from one another and adapt to, you know, what they have to share as well as our own ambition on these projects as well. So there is obviously the climate side of it. In a lot of those Cape Breton projects, the wind, we have snow and driving rain and all that sort of stuff. Like I was saying that the budget side of it was a huge constraint that clarified things. Rabbit Snare Gorge. Uh, That was a project that we collaborated on with these recent graduates out of New York who ended up calling us with their client from New Jersey. And there was a piece of land that we were working on. There was a limited budget and there was a real ambition to do something special. You know, like that was an amazing client who really wanted to do something cool. But of course, it had to be feasible. And the builder that we ended up selecting certainly hadn't done anything like that. And so it needed to be buildable as well because even in those cases, the sites aren't very close to where I am working, like in Halifax. You know, that project is a good four and a half hours away. So, you know, you can't be there every day. So it needs to be familiar in a sense. So how often would you visit that job site? Uh, it depends on what, you know, what's going on, but I'd say it could be every couple of weeks. It could be every month, month and a half, depending on what's going, or it could be a little bit more once every, uh, yeah, I'd say never, for those kind of projects, never more than once every two, three weeks or so. But, you know, you're on the phone a lot. You have to be able to describe things in a way that's understandable, that's for sure. Not only is modern work kind of unfamiliar to most seasoned builders, using architectural drawings is really kind of unfamiliar to to a lot of those builders as well. You know, like that's, that's new territory. And so, I think having to present things in a way that spoke to that builder, whoever that builder was, I think it was reflected in the work as well. That's interesting. I did a project in extreme northern Wisconsin, and we had some of those same issues and challenges that they had a way that they built things, which was log cabins. And this was decidedly not a log cabin. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that was a huge part of the learning curve because, you know, it's not like I had years of crushing modern masterpieces like before that. These were like my first projects as well, right? So it was really about sort of learning what was feasible, what was like, what was realistic with those builders. And so a lot of that, you know, a lot of the design decisions are sort of the product of a lot of conversation. Let me ask you this. I want to migrate, and I know that Andrew and I both came up with a a list of questions, and we want to spend some time talking to you about your design process 
Andrew, I know that one of the things you're interested in, because we noticed that you use a lot of models. So Andrew, why don't you pose your question to him? Yeah. So I was looking through your Instagram and you do use a lot of physical models, it seems. Yeah. In your kind of in your design process. So, you know, my question was for you to talk about that a little bit, like how do you use those in the process and what is the favorite materials that you use? It looks like to me, a lot of them were like wood. I could be wrong, but And they were at different scales and different levels of detail. So just talk a little bit about, you know, your, your use of models and your philosophy on how those work into your design process. Sure. And first, like I would, I would want to start and say, you know, obviously at the beginning it was me designing because it was just me in the room. And if I contributed anything to the way that we design now, it's really just that, you know, there was setting up a system of, working and also maybe a formal language sort of a responsive kind of design that's responding to both climate context and the people who are working there and kind of doing that in as few moves as possible so almost something that could be unfolded and folded in a puzzle and those were really kind of the first models that we did you know using card back in 2010 2011 And then, you know, there's sort of a progression where it ends up becoming a wood model. And, of course, those models hang in the office and they become beautiful pieces themselves. But they're almost sort of like a last check as well, because it's really then that you can walk around it and get a sense of proportion and the composition of the whole thing. So it's both kind of a beautiful relic that we get to keep. But at the same time, it's also, I think, worth more than renderings or anything like that. We don't really do a lot of renderings mostly because we sort of gauge what the client requirement is. And in a lot of cases, when you don't show them, they aren't required, right? Like people can imagine until you show them something that's really realistic, and then all of a sudden they need that, right, to imagine everything else. So we sort of like kind of go down the road and see where it takes us. But, you know, I've always thought that renderings were also the worst investment because in the end of the process, when the project is done and it's photographed, it's the one thing that you'll never see again. You see models, you see sketches and drawings and things that may have turned out different than were originally planned, but renderings, once you have final photos of a project, renderings are just kind of in the garbage. So it's sort of like something you can't even really use ever again. So, you know, we don't pay too much attention to that. And then speaking about our process, I'll jump to now. Everyone in the office is a project architect. So we sort of jump around and people help one another on projects when help is needed. But I certainly don't have the ego or the need to have like the the holy sketch from the master type thing that you see in a lot of offices. Sometimes the ideas come from me. Sometimes they come from other people. And it's very much a collaborative kind of open discussion about things. So the work is the product of our office. And, you know, certainly I helped define that process of designing and a way of thinking about things. But by no means do those ideas always come from me. And I'd say some of our best ideas come from individual people. But really, it's hard to kind of define who did what, because we really have the kind of office where things are left open. And there's always sort of people asking other people what they think. So I think part of that is a mutual respect amongst everybody. But also just a culture of really sharing and uh, not having that hierarchy. I just don't really care, man. I Like, I remember even working for someone who 
would go home at night and redraw something someone in the office did just so that they could like put that in the book and say they designed the first sketch. So, you know, I've always sort of thought that whole thing was really pathetic. <laughs> yeah, that sounds kind of cr- that sounds crazy. It is crazy and, you know, it's very much not rare, I think. Like I think that sort of thing I've, you know, I've seen that in different forms from many different people and that post-rationalized sketches say, secretly more famous than the actual sketch that looks nothing like the end product. That's, that's both amazing and depressing. And ludicrous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems unnecessary because really it's only us that appreciate that sort of stuff. Right. You know, like, uh, you know, it's it's one of those within the profession sort of chest bumping type things. Like, it doesn't make the work better. That's for sure. Yeah, and I'm definitely not a fan of the chest bumping but on the heels of what you just said about the collaborative work environment that you you know you're really trying to foster and it's important and everybody gets to put their finger in the pie as it were here's my question now that you have some notoriety which i think it's fair to say that you do just by the intro piece that we have there's a lot of omar gandhi's this and omar gandhi's that and you work in a yeah. collaborative office are you having to deal with the idea that they come to omar gandhi because they want omar gandhi they don't want you know, the next man up. So do you feel that with two offices and the staff that you have and the number of projects you have that you have to be present at certain times because people expect you to be present because that's why they came to your firm because they want you? Yeah, I I think that that potential certainly exists, but I think that it becomes quite clear right off the bat that, you know, even from the first meeting, really, when I'm sitting with one of our team members that are with me, it's not really that kind of place. So, you know, they might come in thinking that that's the case, but I think in the end, they're really happy with working with more than just me. So I think it's about managing the expectations as early as possible with respect to that. But in the end, I think they definitely get a better product by working with more than just me. That's for sure. Because, you know, there's things that I'm strong at, and there are definitely things that uh, other people in the office are much better at. So I think in the end, they get a product of the office. I got a kick out of the fact that you've recently changed your website. And yeah, and where I work now, we're in the process of changing the website, which for some reason, everywhere I go, that seems to be, I'm the harbinger of changing the website. I'm having comments about hey, websites are changing. You know, architects used to design websites that seemed like they were for the ego of other architects. They weren't very friendly to use and they were overly complicated and tricked out and you have your mouse and lines shoot out and it does weird stuff. And yeah, yours was very clean and simple and I liked it. But one of the things you're, so you have a new one now, you had a landing page on there for a while and you got your new one up and running. Yeah. You've gotten rid of the staff photos. Yeah. And not only did we get rid of that, we got rid of most things on the website. Like, really, now it's just sort of like, these are the projects. Yeah, it's photos. And that was a conscious effort. I'd say that the, the one thing about websites is, does anybody even look at websites? We spent a lot of time rethinking our website, knowing that I don't know if anyone actually looks at them. Because, you know, things like Instagram are way more prevalent than actually clicking on a site and trying to navigate through to find that information. So in the same way that we don't have staff photos, including my own photo, we don't have our awards and publications and all that kind of stuff that, again, it's just nonsense that no one cares about. I know for a fact that when people go to our website, 
it's because they're looking for a project or they're looking at the work. And if they like it, they're going to click a button that connects them with us. Basically just taking out all that other stuff that just is kind of filler. And I hear what you're saying. I just don't think anyone is going to hire us based on that. I wonder though. So, And I don't want to hijack this conversation completely. Yeah. So I tend to think that architecture is a personality-driven business, for better or for worse. Yeah. Especially when I was doing residential work, because if somebody was looking to have a house built, there's already a certain amount of ego that's involved because... Let's face it, there are a lot of houses that are out there that are already built. And so for someone to come to an architect and say, there's nothing out there that suits my needs. I need something that reflects who I am as a person. They already have very strong opinions about their place in the world. And that's not yeah. that's not from judgment. That's just, you know, it's it's they can appreciate the, the nuances of what we might bring to a product. So that means it's no longer about... I want five bedrooms and five bathrooms and a living room and a place to put a pool table. And I don't want it to leak. And I want to have a nice window. It's not about those things anymore. It's about the process. It's about the final product. And it's about the journey from A to B. Yeah. When they decide they're interviewing Omar Gandhi and some some apple picker somewhere else, why would they choose one person over another? And I think it's because they like you better. They're going to choose you because right. of who you are as a, as a person. Yeah. I do think, particularly where, where residential work is concerned, that these folks do their research. I mean, I know that just because of the amount of work that kind of got brought in from my website, because people yeah. go, you seem like a nice person. I think that the way you think aligns with how I think. And there was a connection that was made. And take this with a grain of salt. There's no finished work on my website. That's kind of the whole point of it. Mine's all about process and how do you get from A to B, not here's the destination. Yep. And so, and I talk about making mistakes and this didn't work out right. And now I've got, I've got this in my bag and I won't make that mistake again. And I think that websites serve a purpose to help convey who we are as people. I agree with you that I don't think that people look at it to read square footage and what type of rooms are in it and how long did it take to build and who was the built. They don't care about that stuff. Yeah. They want to project themselves into the process and go, do I like the product and do I like the person? So that's what it's about for me. It's about people yeah. and it's about what people can project themselves into. That's why I will say I did enjoy the fact that you had people on your website. It yeah. wasn't just work. It was these are the people that do these projects that you see. Yeah, no, that's fair for sure. And I think that, you know, a lot of that is reflected in the spirit of our Instagram, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say that in terms of communication, that's our number one tool. The other thing about, you know, when you Google our firm or me or whatever, there's over the, the course of 10 years there, I was fortunate enough to have some nice articles written and people are going to find out about the practice and maybe some more of the personal things through that. I don't have a place on our website anymore where I say that, you know, we won the Governor General's Award or any of that stuff, just because that's, uh, you know, I'm really proud of the work and I don't really want to emphasize that other stuff very much. And so I would say if, you know, you want to see construction photos and the process and snapshots of us in the office, you know, you see all that on Instagram where things kind of change very quickly and loosely, but for a certain demographic, and most people are looking at things on their phone, 
not on a computer. You need to make it as easy as possible for people to navigate through projects. So imagine, you know, you were 65 years old, you're retired now, you're building your recreational home in the mountains somewhere, you're using your phone because that's how people Google things now. You don't see all that stuff on your phone. And I don't think people really pay enough attention to the way in which information is both delivered and received. And so that was really sort of that product, really imagining sort of a demographic who we do a lot of work for and making it as easy as possible for them to figure out, you know, how we did that stare in that house that they remember seeing. I will say this, and since you're who you are, I think this works for you because you've achieved some notoriety early in your, like, you don't need to say that you won the Governor General's Medal in Architecture because there's 50 other people that are saying it on your behalf other places. Not everybody has that. It's a very clever way of you to, hey, I don't need to toot my own horn because all these other people are doing it. We can be more focused and distilled into the things that we want to convey matter to us, which is the product. And and I like that. There's a Peter Zumthor quote that you might appreciate then because, you know, he's famously slow in doing the projects that he does. And he has a, a lengthy kind of portion that leads up to this but when he talks about I do it for the work and it's important to get the work right and it takes a long time because that's how long it takes he says the finished product is your best argument I think that aligns with what you're saying and that you do it for the work and for the end product not for the accolade that's a nice cherry on top but that's not what motivates you yeah and and not even the end product I think like the process of doing it and like sitting together and you know we laugh a lot in my studio i don't know why but i think maybe it's just a group of people that enjoy each other's company and we have a lot of fun you know really that's what makes me happy like that is the best part of the job is kind of you know working together and you know like i said being on site and kind of working through problems that's the gold right there that's the best part of this i agree well on that conversation final point I think it's time for us to get to the hypothetical question, which is really the only reason why the first part of this podcast exists. It's all leading up to this moment with you, Omar. And you're familiar with how this works? Uh, sort of, yeah. Okay. So just to, just to <laughs> lay the initial rules that I will change after you and Andrew give our answer. And I'm wrong. That's part of the rules. My answer is always wrong. Yes, Andrew's always wrong. And... You'll come up with your answer, and I'll tell you, you can't answer that, and I'll introduce a new rule. That's just the way this works. Okay, sure. So here's the question. Would you rather only age from the neck up or from the neck down? All right? Yes. You're our guest, so you can either go first or you can make Andrew go first. Well, can I follow up with a question? Of course. Yes, most definitely, always. Are we talking about physically on the exterior like aging or are we talking about like the way in which things work? all of it all of the above yes. well i gotta tell you i played baseball pretty seriously for most of my youth and it was a pretty sad day a few years ago when i was playing with my son and you know i just turned 40 this year like just a couple months ago and you know i played shortstop and you wouldn't have thought twice about diving for the ball or sliding to a base. (laughs) Like the thought of doing that now 
Uh, like the ball is there. It is three feet in front of you. It's just a lunge away. Like it's just a lunge. You know, you're the thought of even doing that right now just is so far beyond comprehension. Yeah. That makes me really sad. Like that may, that really bums me out. So let me give you this because I, I know that that might influence your answers. Let me give you another one. So when you get to be my right. age and I'm about 10 years older than you are. Okay. The mental aspect of that starts to figure in, like even climbing a ladder. But to put this in perspective, when I was a younger man, I was on a job site and, you know, sometimes drywall guys were wear like four foot tall stilts so they can walk around and do ceilings. I had zero hesitation putting those things on. And within about five minutes, I'm trying to jump hedges while I'm wearing them, you know, like a steeple, like a steeplechase. Yeah. Not only would that never happen now. Now, when I climb ladders, like we just Christmas just ended. And if I get up on the roof, because I'm going to put lights along the edge of the house. Now I think about falling off, <laughs> which <laughs> I never worried about that before. If I fell off, I was like, eh, yeah. I'd land and I'd get up. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. You rub some dirt on it. And yeah. On. Na- yeah. Now I go, that would end me. I'd be done. Yeah. No, I hear you. So. Well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you my, my trick yet yet. So, so what's it going to be? What's your answer? I mean, it sounds like from the neck down or the neck up. Yeah. You want to age from the neck up so you can keep your, your body in, in good top performing order. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. And, and I'll just tie this back to what we were talking about before. I think now, you know, I don't feel very young right now, but I feel like professionally I'm still in the younger part of my career. And so I think it's about also sort of creating positive habits or maybe shaping the way that we work so that I can enjoy the rest of my career. Because quite frankly, I don't want to be kind of a half senile guy who's still angry that the guy down around the corner just won an award and I didn't and all that sort of stuff, right? Like, you know, I just don't care about that side of it. And I want to make sure, as I have been for a long time now, just enjoying kind of the everyday process of designing and being a part of building things. So, yeah, if if my head starts to go, hair starts to kind of fall out and maybe I lose like half my marbles, at least I'll be kind of like laughing with my staff and we'll be having a good time. But I'll still be able to throw a ball around with my son. Okay. All right. Fair. So, yeah, that's my Fair answer. Fair enough. Andrew, you want to go next? I have some questions. I'm going to make up the answers. At what age does this actually begin? You get to choose. You can choose. Oh, okay. Because I was like, is it at birth and I'm a baby for the rest of my life? <laughs> it's an old man head or I'm a grown adult with a baby head? No, you can lock it down. Okay. It's at some point in my life. For example, like Omar okay. saying, he's not lunging three feet at age 40 for that ball. So yeah. we would extend the courtesy to... He could lock in a 30-year-old body so he can still make that lunch. All right. Because that was my biggest concern. <laughs> I was waiting for you to come back with some weird response to that. No? But, okay. No? So if it's if it's dealer's choice on that, then that changes my answer some. And at my current age with where I'm at and the way I feel about myself from the neck up versus the neck down, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go with Echo Omar's response and say from the neck down. Yeah. You're both wrong, but that's okay. Go yeah, ahead and finish. I figured that's what you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason for me is like, I'm still pretty mentally agile, I think. 
seemingly halfway through my life and I'm still pretty good mentally. I still have all my hair. I don't know. I'm not old and wrinkly yet, so I feel like I've still got a few miles out of that part of my body, a few more years before I start to look really old. And so from the neck down, I could, I would prefer to be how I was when I was about 30, um, in that physical shape. Okay. All right. And so that's sort of where I'm at with it. Okay. I went back and forth. I was thinking about maybe from the neck up, but I don't know. It just depends. Okay. So here you go. Here's the right answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It should be from the neck up. See, you're both young men. And I can tell you right now that when your brain starts to go, that's way worse than not being able to lunge for that ball to the right. So, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I would agree. This is very self serving on my part, but me as a prize was never based on my physical appearance. So, it always had to do with my sense of humor, my personality, for better or for worse. It had to do with who I was, and who I was was defined by what my brain was capable of doing. So, to me, that's my greatest asset. I've never made that lunge three feet to my right. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I don't think I'd miss it. I do think that what's interesting about this is we all kind of looked at this as an, an internal performance question. For you guys, it had to do with the performance of your body, not the appearance of your body. Andrew kind of touched on the appearance a little bit, but not enough for me to say that that was a motivating factor. No, no, it was more about the performance of it. Yeah, so there's got to be something that's a little interesting by the fact that the younger people on this call chose performance of their body, and the old man on this call took performance of his brain. There's got to be some wisdom in this is what I'm thinking. You yeah. think it's your wisdom? Well, yeah, well, I'm older. I've, I've been there. <laughs> When I was 40, I thought I was untouchable. I was fireproof on, from all this uh, stuff. See, I don't know. Again, I feel like I'm I'm still pretty good up top. Like, my brain is still working pretty good, firing on all pistons. And I don't know. I guess maybe in the next five years when I get to be your age, it'll change. But <laughs> right, now, I'm think, right now, I'm thinking no. I'm not saying that I'm already suffering. I'm just saying I don't want to start suffering. Well, yeah, I don't either, but... I guess I know my genetic history some too, so I feel like I got a long way before that starts to happen. I guess that's a fair point. So, Omar, how's your family? They okay in the brain? <laughs> they're, well, they're definitely okay with hair, so <laughs> I think I'll be okay. I'll be okay with the hair, but uh, yeah, I think we're good with the brain. One of the things that this could have gone is if we say that you don't age. Now, this could have been a loophole that we were looking for. That kind of suggests that your body is timeless. Like you choose a year, say you're 30 years old, and your body is locked into whatever it is in that moment, which suggests that you can eat all the beer and sausages you want, and it's not going to impact your body. Because <laughs> That's right. It's if I'm stuck there, right? Yeah. Your body's locked into That's the 30s. True. And I go, now that, now that might be something to get me to change my answer. Well, yeah, I'm assuming my, my body mass index is going to stay the same. Like we're locking that in. Yeah. But we didn't bring that up, so I'm almost thinking that was not a consideration for you two. It sort of played into it, but not majorly. That falls into the category, like, I can't have a hot tub, because the only reason why anybody should ever be in a hot tub is because they're drinking, and <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that if I had a hot tub, I'd become an alcoholic. Yeah, you got to avoid Yeah, it. so just don't even put yourself in that position. So by me not locking my body when I was 30... And choosing to save my marbles. I think that's the route I would go. So my question on that, though, because when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, if it's from 
neck down, well, I'll have clothes on and nobody will know that I've got a 30-year-old body till I choose to show that to them because I'll look 70 from the neck up. Horror show. That sounds so terrible. <laughs> no, but like on the flip of that, you're going to have like an 80-year-old old man's body, but your face is still going to look like it was when it was 30. I don't know which one is worse or scarier. Well, I'm married. I don't think my wife cares either way. I know not your wife, but I mean, like, you meet people, you go, like, I'm 85 years old, and they're like, you look like you're 30, and you're like, uh-huh, because I am 30 from the neck up. Yeah, see, that would be great, then, you know, I'm hiding all my, my old man body. Maybe. I think you guys are going to be losing most of your followers after this last part of the, yeah, <laughs> conversation. You'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, we're going to follow Omar's cue and call that a wrap. And stop. And stop. So thank you for being with us today for episode 41, Talking Shop with Omar Gandhi. Thanks for listening. Check out the lifeofanarchitect.com website for show notes. Be sure to wait until the very end to see if there's some blooper gold. And have a great day. Take it easy, everybody. And thanks, Omar. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I should say thanks, Omar. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for calling in and joining us, Omar. I do appreciate you taking the time to come on here. It means a lot. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Omar, I know you like beer. I do. I like beer. Yeah, I like beer. Andrew really likes (laughs) the beers, as he likes to say. Find new people that have conversations with, because all your friends are losing their marbles. I think I could make that work. I'm sure that you do. Does that phrase make sense to a Canadian? Having your finger yeah, in the pie? It's a finger. Maybe it goes in a, is it in a donut? Is that what it is? In a jelly donut? In a jelly? In a jelly? It's just a jelly. Know, in it's a jelly. not a jelly donut, it's just a jelly. That's always heartbreaking. It happens to the best of us.